Good morning. It's good to see everybody here today. Uh, I know it's too bad it's raining for those that walked through the rain. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, it is nice to get a little bit though. It's been dry out there. Uh, how many of you guys in here like those like biopic movies that kind of just tell you the story of somebody's life? Anyone like those? Okay, a few, few people. There's one coming out on Napoleon later uh, this year that I'm really excited about. Um, but I, I love actually just getting to learn about other people's lives. Uh, like I love getting to hear the story of uh, just what they've been through because I feel like when we can take a close look at someone else's life, there's always something that we can learn. Um, sometimes there's really great lessons that we can implement that, that we want to you know, follow them in. Sometimes we learn more about what not to do than what to do. Uh, but anytime that someone is willing to kind of just peel back the curtain and let us take a deep look at their life, and, and especially uh, the most significant moments of their life, I feel like there is uh, so much that we can learn and so many ways that we can grow from that. And the Bible actually gives us this kind of look at a lot of different people's lives, right? I mean, we have the Gospels where we're getting this picture into the life of Jesus. It's just telling us a ton about uh, the things that he did and the things that he said. Uh, you go to the Old Testament and you see uh, stories about guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. We get the, to look into their lives. We get to see their successes and their failures. And there's a lot that we can learn from them and implement in our own lives. There's a lot that we can learn to avoid from them too. You see this with some of the disciples, right? Like we get a decent amount of detail on Peter as we read through the Gospels. And today, as we're in the book of Acts, we are going to take a deep look at a watershed moment in the life of another person in Scripture. We're going to see the most transformative moment of his life. And what we're going to read about this morning changed not only this man's life, but it actually significantly changed the world that you live in today. I mean that. This person is such a significant historical character that he actually had a big impact on shaping the world that you live in today, even though he lived about 2,000 years ago. And so we're going to look up, learn a lot from looking at this man's life, um, and we're not just going to learn about him as we do this, because in this process, we're going to learn about God, and we're going to see how we can be people that go on to change the world too. Maybe it won't be in as big a way as this person did, but there's things that we're going to be able to learn this morning that if we implement them, give us the opportunity to, to shape this world in a better way moving forward as well. So I've been excited. I've been away from preaching for a little while. If you didn't know, I had my... My son Titus, uh, well, Cassie had my son Titus. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I'm excited to be here preaching with you guys again uh, this morning, and I'm really excited to talk about this topic. So let's pray, and I'll dive into it. God, we love you, and uh, we just thank you so much for who you are. Um, God, I think of the, the song that we just sang, like, great and mighty king. You are our great and our mighty king, and we thank you for that. Thank you that you're a good king, Lord, just as, as the rest of the world sometimes can feel like it's in turmoil and there's leadership changes and disputes and all these kind of things, Lord, you remain sovereign and we can trust you. Um, I just thank you, Lord, that you're a king, that you love us. I thank you for the way that you change us, the way that you guide us. God, I thank you for uh, what you did in the, the person's life that we're going to be reading about this morning. We love you, Lord, and we just pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so the man whose life we're going to be looking at this morning, his name is Saul. 
And we're going to look at a very small portion of his life, but zooming in on what I was talking about, that one event that really changed absolutely everything for him. We'll look at his life before this event, uh, look at the event itself, and then get a little bit of a glimpse of his life after it as well. So if you've been with us this summer, you know that we've been studying the book of Acts. And uh, there's already a lot that we've seen happen. Uh, So far in the book of Acts, we've seen the birth of the church, where uh, Jesus promised that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. He ascends up into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. There's awesome ministry that takes place. Lots of people get saved. Uh, They they repent of their sin. They they put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. Uh, There's people that are being healed. The the community that forms is absolutely amazing. They're sharing everything. They're eliminating poverty within their own circle. And and there's just uh, incredible things they're having. They won't stop talking about Jesus. And he's changing the city of Jerusalem where this is happening. And with this, there's people that also start to get upset, right? Because there's some people that really liked the status quo. And, and there's some people that, that don't want this message and this movement to continue growing. And so they start to persecute uh, these people that won't stop talking about Jesus. And this eventually led to the killing of a man named Stephen. Stephen was stoned to death, uh, which means that they uh, literally, there was an angry mob that threw stones at him until it killed him, okay? Pretty brutal way. Uh, Mob violence that that killed this guy uh, who was doing nothing other than preaching the gospel, uh, helping people, serving widows. This is the kind of guy that they they killed. And so uh, we see that in Acts 7.58. It says, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, Stephen, and witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first mention in Scripture that we get of this guy named Saul, that he's present at the stoning of this, uh, this Christian guy, Stephen. And people were laying their robes at his feet. So uh, this means that, that basically he was someone that was kind of watching their clothes as they were off busy murdering somebody, right? So he was an accomplice in this process of, of killing Stephen. And he was a person that had a certain level of authority uh, that they, they would have trusted because he was someone who uh, was a Pharisee, which I'll get to that in a second. But uh, right after Stephen died, we see that, that this guy Saul was in total agreement with this, this killing that just happened. And Acts 8, 1 to 3 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. This dude was super serious about trying to stamp out this new Jesus movement. Uh, He had crossed to the point of really having blood on his hands now after killing Stephen, and this seemed to send him into overdrive in doing whatever he could to stop this message from spreading. And you might ask, like, what is this dude's deal? Like, why doesn't he just let people live their life? Like, why is he so obsessed with trying to stop this, even to the point where he's willing to kill people and and get them arrested to stop it, to stop the spread of the gospel? Well, the the word gospel means good news, and that's how we see it as Christians. Uh, But in Saul's mind, the gospel of Jesus was not good news. You see, he was a Pharisee, and if you read the gospels, you know that these are the guys that Jesus was getting into arguments with all the time. 
The harshest words that you see Jesus have in the scripture are usually directed towards these people that are the Pharisees. Now, Saul was not one of these Pharisees that Jesus spoke to directly. Uh, It doesn't seem that Saul ever had any actual interaction with Jesus before the crucifixion. Um, But nonetheless, he was cut from the same cloth as these people. These were the people that that were shaping his thinking, training him. He was like them. And uh, these guys were fiercely devoted to keeping the Old Testament law which was the word of God. So you might think that Jesus would have actually gotten along really well with these people, right? Like they loved the, the, the law. They, they studied it and knew it really well and, and worked hard to try and keep it. The problem was that they were oftentimes missing the point of what the law was really teaching. And so even though they were really smart, they knew the words of it really well, their hearts were far from God and their hearts were oftentimes hard against people as well. And so in that, they were missing what the law was all about. What Jesus said, the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, Saul was one of these Pharisees, and not only was he one of these Pharisees, uh, but he was kind of an overachiever, right? Um, Later on in his his life, when he's retelling his story, he says this about himself. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So it's not just that Saul was a Pharisee. He was like, if there was an all-star game for the Pharisees, he was in the all-star game, right? Like this this dude was was up there. He was studying under a very prominent uh, rabbi named uh, Gamaliel, And even though he was relatively young, it was clear that he was becoming a very influential person and he was kind of a rising star in his field. Now he says he was extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions and he saw this message about Jesus to be something that was challenging those traditions. At this time, remember, all Christians pretty much, almost all Christians are Jewish, ethnically Jewish. Uh, Christianity has its roots In the Old Testament, Jesus was Jewish. He followed the Old Testament law. Jesus himself said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And and so we see Christianity and Judaism as these very two distinct things, and they've they've kind of gone down divergent paths over history. But at the time, these early Christians were really just seen as some kind of strange sect of Judaism. They're like, wait, are they the same religion as us or not? Like, they don't really, there's a lot of confusion about what this thing even actually is. But we know that these Jesus people um, saw the law differently than the way that the Pharisees did. And they believed that Jesus had fulfilled it, which led them to live in a way that was different than what the Pharisees were teaching people to live. And Saul saw their interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures and their worship of a man named Jesus to be an abomination and a threat to what he loved and cared about most. And Saul decided that he wasn't going to just let this kind of weird sect, like cult type thing get off the ground, but he was going to stamp it out before they could cause any more problems. But his persecution of Christians in Jerusalem, as he was there for the stoning of Stephen, what this did was actually caused a scattering. But rather than making, uh, rather than helping him in his goal, it actually made it worse because as these Christians scattered, what they do? They brought the message of Jesus with them all to these other places. And Ben preached about that a little bit last week. So now he needed to travel also to these other places that the Christians had gone and try to stamp out the message there as well. It's kind of like he was playing whack-a-mole, right? Just keep this message down wherever he can. And so we see this in Acts 9, 1-2. It says, Now Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for, lead, for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it's on this journey, as he's going to try and stamp out Christianity in this other city, Damascus, that he's going to have this encounter that will absolutely change his life and change our world. So let's see what happens there, picking back up at Acts 9, verse 3. It says, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul is quite literally blinded by a light that he sees from heaven. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I'm just thinking in his mind, he's like, what in the world is going on? Like, who has experiences like, like what, you, you're, you're blinded, you're knocked down, you're hearing a voice. Why are you persecuting me? He must have no idea what's going on. So he says, who are you, Lord? And the response he gets, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul could not have had any idea how to process that at the moment. Right? Like, think, think about who he was. This is a man who believed he was devoted to the Lord, zealously, right? Like even more so than all of his contemporaries he talked about. He had devoted himself to studying the law, to keeping it. By persecuting Christians, he thought he was doing the Lord's work. And instead now he realizes, wait, I'm, I'm persecuting the Lord? He thought he was doing the Lord's work by stamping out a heretical cult. That was a threat to God's people. And instead it turns out that he was actually working against the very God that he was trying to serve. He had to be wondering, is this real? Is this some sort of bad dream? Is this a nightmare that I'm going to wake up from? Like, he must have hoped it was a bad dream, but it wasn't. The men that were there with him, they heard the voice too. And even though he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. It's darkness. For three days, it must have felt like he was dead. Everything that he had built his world around was being challenged. He couldn't see. He couldn't eat. He wouldn't drink. You know, it's interesting that this time of darkness lasted for three days. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, was in the belly of a fish for three days. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. And now here we see Saul sitting in darkness and confusion for three days. Now Jonah eventually came out of that fish and he changed his ways, albeit somewhat reluctantly, and he went and he did what God told him to do. Jesus came out of the tomb, was raised to new life. What's going to happen to Saul? Let's read on and see. Picking back up at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, 
And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Saul came out of this darkness and was given new life. The scales fell off of his eyes and he regained his sight physically, but now they were also open spiritually. As shown by his decision to be baptized, realizing that he had come to see Jesus for who he actually was, not someone that he needed to try and stop the message about, but someone that he needed to put his faith in and trust for salvation. You know, one of the things that I find so interesting about this story, and you actually see it all throughout the Bible, is the way that God uses other people to accomplish his mission. Right? Like, God is all-powerful. We have seen him work in very supernatural ways. Even in this story, right? Like, there's a supernatural light from heaven. There's a voice from heaven. If God wanted to, he could have just done everything that was necessary to convert Saul to Christianity by himself. But instead of doing this, he chooses to get, the, the ball, get, it, get it started, but he instead chooses to employ Ananias to go and help as well. And from our perspective, it's really cool that Ananias actually got blessed with being an, a, a, having the opportunity to be a part of this story. Right? Like how cool is it that he got to be the one that was there to baptize this guy, Saul, and, and to heal him of blindness? You know, I've been blessed with the opportunity to lead several people to Christ and baptize them. And when I see them go on to, to live faithfully for Jesus and, and God bears fruit for, through them, and it always makes me super thankful that I had the opportunity to just be a part of their story. You know, but Ananias wasn't actually initially excited about this opportunity to go and be used in God's mission. He was fearful, and understandably so. Saul had a reputation that preceded him. Remember, this is a guy that was a zealous persecutor of the church. Ananias must have felt like he was a mouse that was being sent to the home of a cat. Right? Like This is a guy that had literally come to try to, to arrest people like him, and now God is telling him, I want you to go and seek him out and find him. Naturally, he had fear, but his faith in God was stronger than his fear. And so he went, and wow, I am so thankful that he did. And I'm sure that he was too by the time it was over. You know, when God calls us to do something, it might not always be something that we're initially excited about doing, but it's always something that's worth doing. It won't always be easy, right? There was plenty of difficulty ahead for Saul. This was a difficult mission for Ananias. Matter of fact, when uh, God spoke about 
what he was going to do with Saul. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And suffer he did. You look at the life of what's going to happen with this guy Saul, we're going to get to know him very, very well here throughout the rest of Acts. And we're going to see that he suffers a lot. But if you were to ask him, was it all worth it? He would say, absolutely. And I know that because he already said it. If you look at one of the letters that he wrote later in Philippians, he said this. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, Saul, who you guys probably know better as Paul, which he would come to be known by more prominently later, said, man, I, I've suffered the loss of all things for Christ, but it's, worth, it's totally worth it. Matter of fact, all this stuff I've suffered through, it's nothing in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Matter of fact, he even said that he wanted to know the fellowship of his sufferings. That's a really interesting phrase there that he uses. This means that he wanted to know what it was like to suffer in serving God the same way Jesus did, right? As this happened, they would have a shared experience together. People that have suffered in the same way have a certain bond and shared experience. People that have gone to war together that have seen the horrors of that and the difficulty of that, have a certain fellowship of suffering and that they've been through something extremely difficult together. And, and you know, Jesus, of course, did something very difficult, taking on flesh, walking amongst the, the, the world that he made, uh, being persecuted, uh, beaten, mocked, and eventually killed. That's some suffering. For right, and he was righteous. And Paul's saying, I want to know the fellowship. I want to know Jesus so bad that I actually want to, to get to know him in this way, that just as he was righteous and suffered for it, I want to live righteously and suffer for it. That's even going to be something that helps me know him, which is what I want more than anything. That's why everything else is trash and view that surpassing value of knowing him. And so, yes, Paul would say it was 100% worth it, even though he had to suffer so much for the name of Jesus. You know, we don't seek out suffering simply for the sake of suffering. We seek God, but we do so knowing full well that suffering is likely to come as a result of it. You might not go through a lot of physical suffering the way that Paul did. Maybe you will. I don't know what your future holds. You might go through the suffering of, of losing relationships or being an outcast because of your faith. If you choose that you're going to be serious about following Jesus, it's going to cost you something. I don't know what God has in store for each of us, but I know that he calls us to participate in his mission. And in doing so, he is going to use that experience to shape us into the people that he wants us to be. God is not lacking in power. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. But he chooses us and invites us into his work, into meaning, into purpose, don't think of him as a God that's desperate for your help. Rather, I think of it more like my relationship that I have with my, my two-year-old daughter when she's helping me with a construction project, right? Like, she's not helping me with my construction project. I, I of course, am capable of doing it without her, but I want to involve her because I care about her growth. 
I care about involving her because I want her to, to, to grow into a woman that's strong and capable. And um, Man, when God invites us into his mission, it's not like he couldn't just appear from, like we've seen him do it already. He can speak voice from heaven. He can do that. He can send visions. He can send angels. But he chooses to let us be the primary vessels through which he communicates the gospel to the world. And he grows us into the people he wants us to be through that process. You know, I said earlier that this was the most transformative moment of Saul's life. And I want to read on a little bit more just to show you a glimpse of, of how he changed and what his life looked like after this moment of conversion. So we'll, we'll read on here through the end of the chapter. It says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to them and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Just as Saul was totally shocked when Jesus spoke to him, now all of those that heard Saul speak were totally shocked by what he had to say. Just think for a minute about how crazy this is. Right? The, the guy that had recently been arresting Christians, approving of their murder, is all of a sudden preaching their message. Keep in mind, this is a guy, he traveled from Jerusalem to Damascus. This is a 160-mile journey. Cars don't exist at the time, so it's not, as, it's not convenient to do that. And he did this for the explicit purpose of arresting Christians and bringing them to Jerusalem. Hearing this guy preach that Jesus is the Christ must have been as shocking as Someone going to a Nazi rally here, expecting to hear Hitler like rail against the Jews and instead hearing him come out and speak about how awesome they are. I mean, it's like, it, you wouldn't know what to do. That's why the people were confounded. How, how is this happening? It would be so shocking that you might doubt that it was true. And we see that actually when Saul went back to Jerusalem, he, he, he goes back and now he's a Christian. So what's he trying to do? Hang out with the Christians. Well, the Christians don't want to hang out with him, <laughs> right? What? They, they must have thought that this was some sort of elaborate trick, right? That it was like a Trojan horse type thing. I'm going to have you let down your defenses. I'm going to get to know you, get all your people, and I'm, I'm going to have a coordinated attack and take you all out, right? And I can understand why they were thinking that. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples in Jerusalem for a second. 
we need to remember, this is real history, okay? This isn't like fiction that someone just came up with. It's not just a nice story. These are real people that had real emotions, real fears. It's telling the story of how things happen. And I can understand that the, 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 the disciples, the Christians in Jerusalem, were skeptical. This man, Saul, had brought great suffering to their community. He had even participated in the murder of one of their good friends, a prominent person in their church. And now he wanted to come be a part of that church. Think about that. Could you imagine joining a church where you recently, like within the last several years, had murdered one of the members? Could you imagine that? Like if, if you killed somebody here in H2O and then you're like, yeah, I want to be a part of the church. Like, like, what? <laughs> like like th- that person was loved by this community. That, that Stephen had friends, possibly family, that were still in that church at Jerusalem. And, and the fact that, this, that, that Saul was able to be eventually accepted into this fellowship shows you the, the, something incredible about the grace of God and how it transforms the hearts of people. Man, the, the fact that Saul could even show his face at that place at Jerusalem, after realizing what he had done, shows that he believed the gospel enough to let it free him from the enormous shame and guilt that he must have had and murdering an innocent man like Stephen. And how the church could forgive him and accept him into their fellowship shows how much they must have truly believed the gospel. When when Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that they took that seriously. If anyone had a right to hold grudges and say, well, I just can't forgive this. It's these people at Jerusalem. This guy murdered one of their good friends. And eventually they welcome him into their fellowship. You know, Saul couldn't change what he did in the past. He hated what he did. He knew it was wrong. He later wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He never tried to shy away from the reality and the horror of what his past was. But even though he couldn't change his past, he knew that God could forgive him of it. And that's exactly what God did. He would later write this in 1 Timothy 1, 12-16. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience and as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. It is a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance. If God can forgive Saul, he can forgive anyone. And so he says, man, that, that's... That's why he chose me. I have, no, I have no right to be where I am or given the opportunities I've been given. But God wants to show just how deep his grace is. 
Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, and that includes every single one of us that's sitting here in this room. There's not a single one of us that's able to stand pure and guiltless before the Lord on our own. Not one of them. Matter of fact, Saul was trying really hard to do that. That's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. They worked harder than anybody to try to be perfectly pure, to follow God's word perfectly. And even though they tried as hard as they could, look how far off track they got. Look how far off track Saul got. There isn't a single one of us that hasn't gotten off track in our attempts to try and be the people that God wants us to be. And this is why Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Saying, I know you're not perfect. I know you're not worthy of, of, of being in the presence of God, of having eternal life, of any of the kind of things I want to give you, of being an heir to the kingdom that I want to share with you. But because I love you, I'm going to forgive you. And God, as a just judge, says there has to be payment for sin. And so Jesus comes, he takes on flesh, he walks this earth, God in a human body, and he dies on the cross for my sin and for yours. Saying, death is the penalty for sin. Yes, I'm going to pay it for you. And he rose from the dead. <laughs> Three days later, comes up out of that grave. And he says, anyone who put their faith in me, they're gonna, they can have eternal life. They're going to raise to new life just the way I did. And guys, this is the gospel. This is the good news that God wants to give us new and eternal life in him. And that's the message that Saul would not shut up about for the rest of his life. And so, as I draw near the end here, I want to ask you, just, do you believe that Jesus still saves sinners? Even the most unlikely ones, even the people that you expect are least likely to become Christians. Saul was probably... If you lived at that time in the whole world, one of the least likely people you would think to become a follower of Jesus. Here we are reading a bunch of his words 2,000 years later, praising the name of Jesus. Saul was an unlikely follower. He was the one that was persecuting the church and now he was part of it. And, and guys, this is, this is real history. Like, this is an actual historical event. This isn't just like a book someone wrote. But it's not some, and while it's real history, it's, it's not just history. It's not just something that's confined to the past. God still saves unlikely people today. There are countless stories of the way that God has met people at unexpected places, in unexpected times, and absolutely transformed their lives. People in this room have stories like that, how God came, he flipped their world upside down when he wasn't even on their radar. And so rather than just telling you that that exists, I decided why not let you hear one. Um, so I'm going to have my friend Zane come up and actually share a little bit about his story of how Jesus came and met him and, and flipped his world upside down. So welcome him on, on up here. But. Yeah, like Grant said, my name is Zane. Um, it's kind of crazy, this idea of being an unlikely Christian. The people who knew me in my life even a year ago, there's no way they would have made the guess that, yeah, he's going to be at church every Sunday and he's going to drop out of college and try to step into full-time ministry. Um, so I was born in Marysville Prison. 
um, and from Marysville Prison, I went to five different hospitals, <laughs> five different foster homes in between the time I was born and being 18 months old. Um, from there, I was adopted by a woman named Jody Ramsey, who I witnessed beat my older sister up until the age of six or seven. Um, so my older sister decided to sexually abuse both my, me and my little brother to get out of the home. So that, you know, she finally got out of the house and that physical and emotional abuse turned from her to me. Um, so I experienced that until I was about 11 years old and the response to everything in the home was violence. Um, even, you know, if we did something well, then, you know, me and my little brother would punch each other and, you know, that was just what we understood. If we did something poorly, the response was violence and being beat. Um, there was times in which we weren't allowed to eat for, you know, a week, two weeks at a time. Um, so I, <laughs> needless to say, was a pretty violent kid growing up to the point to where when I was 11 years old, I caught a felony assault charge um, for beating a kid who was using racial slurs against my little brother. Um, so I went to Department of Youth Services, or DYS, which is essentially youth prison. Um, it is a maximum security, only F2s and up um, who go here. These kids are, you know, 16, 17 years old, and for the first six months of that, um, it was fighting every single day. Um, I mean, I was 11 years old and quite small, and um, an easy target for someone who can, you know, take my food or, you know, get more from me than what they have themselves. Um, from there, I got out very temporarily, and I was essentially just kind of in and out of jail for fighting and, you know, just doing dumb stuff as a kid. Um, so I'm from downtown Columbus, so it was just really easy to get into all kinds of issues with anybody who had, I guess, or wanted those problems. Um, from there, when I was 16, um, I went back to stay with Jody. Um, and it went from being physically abused to, oh, every time you do anything, then I'm going to call the cops. I'm going to try to get you put back in jail. Because at this point, I didn't, it wasn't that I cared as much about being physically abused as what I cared about my freedom. So this was now the tool that could be used against me. Um, so, I mean, quite literally, at least twice a week, um, the cops were called until I got a DYC, which is a disorderly conduct. Essentially what that is is, your parents call the cops enough, the cops get tired of it, and they're gonna throw you in jail for 30 days and call it good enough. Um, after those 30 days, I got out and was talking to the magistrate. I explained to the magistrate that, you know, you can either take me out of the home or I'm going to leave the home. Like, there is no other options. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of, you know, coming in and out of the system, being in and out of jail, constantly having my freedom ripped from me. Um, so they took me out of the home, they put me in group homes, which group homes really aren't this like Hollywood idea that you see where it's like, oh, this family brings in kids. It's, it's not that at all. Um, it is a concrete campus with, you know, 50 to 100 kids. Um, and we just kind of live our lives the same way we would if we were in the foster homes that were abusive. Um, there was one in Mohican that I went to, which is Mohican Young Star Academy. Um, that was shut down for the physical abuse um, that happened with me. Um, so from there, I, <laughs> I got out again when I was 18, and I went right back to Columbus, right back to this environment in which it was so easy to get into all these issues. Um, and 
instead of stepping in and fighting all the time again, what I started doing is I was seeking some kind of a community, some way to fit in with people. Um, so I'd go out to clubs, and I was in this party scene, and I was going out drinking, smoking, being lustful, and things of this nature. Um, and coming to Cincinnati in August, I had the same idea of this is what I want to do, right? Okay, it's college, I get to party, um, I get to go out, have fun, this is what you do when you go to college. Um, and I ran into Trevor and Caleb here on campus, um, and they were out, and they were evangelizing, and they approached me, and first thing that came through my head was, what are these guys trying to sell me? What do they want? Um, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to share Jesus with me. They wanted to share the gospel with me. Um, I didn't come to college. At, like, the, If you would have told me that I would have been involved in a church at all or even talked to somebody from the church, I would have called you crazy. There was like absolutely no way. Um, for a while in my life, I would have, like, it tried to, not only was I an atheist, but I would have tried to convert you into atheism and try to show you why God doesn't exist. Um, so Trevor and I talked for about four and a half hours that day, um, and from there, we talked again the next day, and Trevor asked me a few questions. First, he asked me if God, if he, I thought that there was a God who loves me, um, and my response was, well, of course, like, of course God loves me. Like, I'm a good guy. Like, um, you know, I think that I have a good heart, this and that, um, so we talked about that, and we worked through that, and then he asked me the question of, okay, what do you think the percentage chance would be that you would make it to heaven if you were to die today? Um, and I told him once again, you know, 100%, you know, like, God has to know our heart, and we know that God is good, and that he's loving, and that he cares about us a ton, right? So if I'm a good person, then I must be able to make it to heaven. Um, he was like, yeah, like, that, those are really good things, but that's not what's going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. The only thing that's going to get you into the kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ. And there was something like deep inside of me that understood that what he was saying was true. And Trevor actually asked me later why I believed him that day. Um, and I had to like really think about that. And my, like the only thing that ran through my head was I was like, okay, either Trevor has figured something out that I need to figure out, or he is really, really good at lying and he's probably a cult leader. Um, and I was like, that, like, there is no other options here. I mean, there was something genuine about that conversation that I was pretty sure that he wasn't leading a cult. Um, and I just, like, I just became obsessed with this love of God that I had felt. It's like I had, like, growing up, the response was everything at violence, and I see that God's response is grace and mercy and love towards us. And I was like, I don't even understand these concepts. Um, so I continued to be involved. Uh, at that point, I, like, hadn't accepted Jesus. I think I understood him intellectually. I understood this concept, um, but I wasn't ready to give up the power and control that I thought I had over my own life. Um, so we had fall retreat, and I went to that because I was like, oh, like, yay, I get to travel, and I get to go out and have fun. Um, and I listened to John give a, um, a sermon about, like, just how temporary everything is outside of our relationship with Christ, right? Um, and I came to a point where I was like, okay, I need to make a decision about this now. It's either, A, I leave this community in which I've seen so much love out of and so much grace and mercy towards me even um, and so much patience from this community, and or... I submit myself to Christ. So I sat there and, you know, we worshiped for quite a while that evening. And I don't know, I think about halfway through, um, I was like, okay, well, like, I need to submit myself to this entirely and fully. And I want to give my entire life to this. So I went back. I was looking at somebody for somebody to pray for me. And I was like, okay, where's Trevor at? Can't find him. And then I was like, okay, well, where's Grant at? Maybe Grant can pray for me. Um, and standing in the back of all of us worshiping was Aaron Whitaker. Um, and Aaron Whitaker would pray with me that evening, and I accepted Jesus into my life. Um, a couple months later, um, I was baptized in November, um, and then after that, I knew, like, 
I knew really, really quickly that I didn't want to just sit on the gospel, right? I didn't want to sit here and, okay, look, like, I have God and I have his love. And it's like, okay, cool. Like I, like, I wanted people to experience this love. I wanted people to understand the gospel. I wanted them to know who Christ is. Because, like, if two guys walking up to me on the street and sharing the gospel with me brought me to this point in my life, then it's going to work with every person that we talk to, right? Even if it's down the line, I can think back and see there are people in my life who are sharing the gospel with me, and I was, just wasn't ready to listen at that point. Uh, but it was preparing me for that conversation, obviously. Um, so I was like, okay, well, maybe I want to change my major so I can step into ministry somehow like that. Maybe, like, education, work with kids. Um, and once again, John gave me an amazing piece of advice, which was used wisdom until God speaks. And when God speaks, that becomes wisdom. Um, and in January of this year, I dropped out of college so that I could step into full-time ministry. And I'll be going to leadership training here in just a few days. Um, and coming back and hopefully interning with H2L. And I think it's insane. Actually, is there a Bible somewhere? Can I get somebody's Bible? I don't have mine. Anybody? Literally a Bible, please. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Chase. Appreciate that. That'll work. So I was reading through a piece of scripture um, that was just really encouraging to me the other day, and it's in Exodus, er, not Exodus, it's in Genesis 50, and it's Genesis 50, 20. Um, and it says, as, as, for you, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, what is it, so to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's insane to me like how God uses the most awful events in our life for so much good. I wouldn't change anything in my testimony. There's nothing in the world you could offer me to change that. Because now, as I go out and I can evangelize, I can share the gospel with people, I have the ability to relate to the people that I'm talking about, talking to and talking to Jesus about really, really well. So, yeah, that is my testimony. God saves sinners. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. It's a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance. You know, as I close here, and thank you, Zane, for sharing that story. It's, it's an awesome story of what God's done. And I just want to close here by, by saying, man, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? You might have seen that in Acts 9.22. It says, uh, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who, believe, who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that might have sounded weird to you, right? Because uh, you probably always just heard Jesus Christ, right? Like some people think it's Jesus' last name or something like that. Um, Christ is actually a, it's a, a title, okay? It's a, it's a title. It's a Greek word, Christos, and it, it uh, comes, it's the equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah, maybe a word that you've heard before, and uh, really what these words just mean is anointed one. It, it's, it's speaking of one who has been anointed, and it really carries royal connotations more so than anything else. Uh, to anoint someone is to, to put oil on their head, and when um, kings in Israel, before they would, would ascend to the throne, would, would be anointed. So uh, when God sent uh, Samuel to go and, and find Saul and anoint him as king. He puts oil on his head, he anoints him, saying, this guy is going to be the king of Israel. And then later Saul would lose that, and, and uh, 
he sends Samuel to, to go and anoint David. And so there's this idea of, of this anointed one, this Messiah, that there is a coming king. And uh, at the time of Saul, faithful Jews were waiting on this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one, this coming king. They were, were waiting on him, this one that was chosen to save their nation from oppression, rule faithfully in line with the will of God. So Saul was awaiting this anointed one um, while he was persecuting the church. And when he was breathing out threats and murder, it's, it's not that he didn't believe that a Christ was, was coming. He thought there was a Christ, a Messiah coming. He just didn't think that it was Jesus. But after the scales quite literally fell off of his eyes, he saw clearly for the first time and he started to properly understand the scriptures that he knew so well but have been missing the whole time. Seeing that Jesus really is this king. He is the Christ. And immediately he started to live in accordance with that. Because that's what you do, right? King has authority. When he tells you to do something, you do it. Jesus told him to be a witness. He was. It didn't matter what kind of opposition there was. People plotted to kill him at Damascus. Did that stop him from preaching? No. He escaped in a basket, and he went off to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, he gets there, he, he wants to hang out with the disciples, with his brothers in Christ. They initially don't accept him into their family. Did this stop him from preaching? No. Thankfully, though, Barnabas reached out and eventually helped graft him in. Jews in Jerusalem were also trying to murder him. Did that stop him from preaching? No. He escaped there, and he would go on, and, and we're going to see a lot more of this guy. Because it didn't matter what other kind of opposition would would raise up and try and stop him from doing this. The king had told him to do something and he was going to do it because he was convinced that Jesus is the Christ. Kings have authority and they give protection as well, right? And there's no other force in this world that has the kind of authority that God does and there is no other force in this world that offers the kind of care and protection that he does as well. This is why Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out for ministry, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. There are so many things in this world that we can be tempted to fear, but the only one that's really worth fearing is God. And the good news is, that God who's actually worthy of our fear has extended his hand out to us and said, I love you, I want to forgive you, and I proved it at the cross. And with that, as he sends us out, he says, I know what's going on. I know how to protect you. I know how to care for you. I know what's going on with the sparrows. I know the, the, the hairs of your head. You're more valuable. So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then may you be someone that gives him your praise and your obedience. Praise him for your story. If you have a story, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as Zane's. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as Paul's. Frankly, uh, I used to think for a long time that my story was very boring. I was a church kid. And that wasn't really until college that I came to realize the beauty of my story and the thankfulness for it. And, and one of the biggest things that, that helped me with that was understanding that my story is not really my story. It's God's story. 
And your story is God's story. Because if you know Jesus, it's because he saved you. And so yes, it's your story, but it's really more his. And he has a reason for why he calls each of us in the way that he does. We may not know that. Maybe later on in life you get insight into why God chose to call you the way he did. We see Paul do that later, right? When he was writing 1 Timothy, that... that Paul lived the life he did prior to knowing Jesus and, and that God chose it to call him in that way because through that, he was going to show that, that he can save even the chief of sinners. So whatever your story is, whether you're a church kid or whether you were born in a prison, God has a reason for why he's called you the way that he has. And may you praise him for that and be thankful for that. And, and also I would say, like, obey him in sharing your story. Share your slash his story, right? God has called you to be his witness and make disciples. And your story is something people can't really argue with. You can get into arguments all day about proof or existence of God or anything like that. At the end of the day, you know what Jesus has done in your life. And you get to share that with people. And if you have the courage to go and share this and the tenacity, Paul was sharing his story all the time. We'll see it pop up several times throughout Acts. You see him reference it in his letters. He's constantly going back to this. And if you want to be a world changer, the way that, that, that Paul was, and I, I said, this didn't just change his life, this changed the world. Think of how many people became Christians because of the ministry that this guy would go on to have. Who knows what our world would look like if he didn't share his story all the time, but praise God that he did. And, and you have the opportunity to be a world changer by doing the same thing. That is, as you share your story and as you help people come to know Jesus, there are, are generations that might be changed because of the, the decision that you make to open your mouth and to share your life with someone else. If you're in a spot right now where you're not really sure, like you, you, don't, you don't believe yet that Jesus is the Christ, the way that that Saul became convinced on that road to Damascus. I just say, man, like, I, I would love to honestly, like, have a talk with you about it. And I mean that as, a, like, a genuine thing. I'm not hard to find. I'll be, I'll probably have one of those lanyards on my neck. Like, I would love to talk with you about it, either here or we can, we can set up a time to do that. If you don't want to talk with me about it, then, then I encourage you, speak with the person who invited you. Or, uh, you know, some other trusted Christian that, that might be in your life. Talk to them about what is it that, that's maybe standing in your way and holding you back right now from, from being convinced that, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the king. I get that there's some things about Christianity that are hard to accept. But sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. There are just some amazing things that happen in our world. The resurrection is mind-blowing, but it happened. The, the transformation of Saul, it's mind-blowing. It reads almost like fiction, but it happened. Like, it's objective truth. We know our world has been shaped by this guy's ministry. He's a real historical figure. So, make what you will of it. Like, I don't know, something happened. Something happened. Zane didn't come to college thinking that he was going to be a Christian. Something happened in his life. Paul wasn't going to Damascus thinking that he was going to be a Christian. Something happened in his life. And we might argue about what happened, but something happened to change the world that we live in. As person after person has encountered Jesus and the gospel has spread around the globe. So I encourage you to really consider that. And, and I'm serious. My invitation's open. I'd love to talk with you if, if you're wrestling with this and, and you're not quite sure uh, that Jesus is the Christ. So uh, I'm going to pray. And uh, if you guys want 
prayer individually. There's going to be people around the room that have these little green necklaces on. I'd say, how can I pray for you? We'd love to pray with you. Um, you know, maybe it's something I spoke about this morning. Maybe it's just something else entirely that's going on in your life. You can find us all around the room. Be happy to pray with you uh, as we enter into this last worship set here. So let's pray together. Um, God, we love you and just thank you for the awesome God that you are. Um, I thank you, Jesus, uh, that you came into the world to save sinners. I thank you that you transform lives and that uh, you transform our world. God, I thank you that our world is different because of um, your, your grace and your love and your mercy towards us and, and the obedience of people that have, have gone forth and, and continued to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. And so, you're our king. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are. And we just ask, Lord, that, that you'd help us to be people that, that celebrate our stories and that share them consistently with those that are around us and give you all the glory because ultimately they're your stories. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in your son's awesome name. Amen.